All right, so I appreciate the good work Pastor Bernie has done and his team. <clears throat> Quite a team leading out there. Ken, you can't go anywhere and not end up on the video. So you just know that that's a fact. Uh, but uh, yeah, I appreciate the good work that uh, Pastor Bernie's done. And, and they had their whole team up and, and talked today and it was, a, it was a lovely service. So uh, thank you all. Uh, I know that <clears throat> some of the realities of it all of another generation, of another approach, of another attitude, sometimes is a little stressful. Um, but I appreciate uh, the willingness of this community to recognize our desire here is not to be narrow about one thing, but to be expansive enough to allow God to work in whatever ways he's going to work. Now that calls for discernment and wisdom on our part, and we're always trying to do that, but trying to give each other room within the same house. Not that this house would be filled with people that are all exactly the same for everything, but instead it really would be a reflection of who we are as a larger people, a larger group uh, that has expressions consistent for everyone. So we continue to go down that road, and I thank you for your prayers and celebration with the bridge being one year old. So let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we now turn our minds to your word, to most important dream that you sent long ago for the purpose that we might understand the end is certain. Help us to see that today and to gain faith in it. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so I, clo I closed last Sabbath with these words. <clears throat> it is not our purpose not our purpose that must be achieved, but God's purpose that must come to pass. And what is God's purpose? Nothing short of total victory through Jesus. And though sometimes that purpose is hard to understand or see, still, his purpose knows neither haste nor delay and no power in heaven or upon the earth can prevent the final victory of our God of wisdom and power. And then I ended with these words, but to hear how he will do it, you will just have to come back next Sabbath. Well, here we are, good news. Today I wanna to tell you about the victory that God is going to win through Jesus. It all comes out of a vision. This vision is found in the book of Daniel chapter two. And it's really a most remarkable chapter because part of the chapter is a story and part of the chapter is a prophecy. We spent time last Sabbath talking about the story and talking about Daniel who spoke of the God of wisdom and power. Today we tackle the vision all of this is part of our fall series, The End is Certain, based out of the book of Daniel. And we'll be spending our time here throughout this fall. <clears throat> but if you recall from the story, there was a pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar in the land of Babylon who had a dream. Nobody could tell him what the dream was. He insisted they tell him the dream and then tell him the interpretation no one that is except Daniel. 
God honored Daniel and gave him the same dream the king had. And we pick up the story in verse 27. <clears throat> Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Now that line there, we normally, we use the New International Version normally uh, for our messages here because that's the Bible you have in your pews and if you wanted to take it out and look, you could. But there's actually a bit of an interpretive issue here related to this translation because it, this makes it very smooth. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. You kind of get the idea. He's shown him a little look forward. But what God has revealed is much more than a little look ahead. In truth, what the words there literally say is, he has shown Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the, day, in the end of the days. The New American Standard, I think, is a little closer here. It says he has shown him what will happen in the latter days. So this is a clue to us in our interpretation that what we should be looking for as we interpret these words is not just some little short-term thing, but he has shown him what will happen at the end of the days. And what is that? Well, according to this vision, the end is certain. Now I want you to pause for a moment and reflect on how remarkable this is. This really in the Bible is the first detailed vision where God is laying out, okay, here's what's gonna happen. This is gonna happen, this, 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 then this, then the end. This is the first time God has laid it out like this. There's been lots of prophets. There's been lots of prophecy. There's even been hinting at the end, but there has been no chronology like this to happen yet. So this is the first time, but here's the amazing thing. This vision, is given first to the as yet pagan king of Babylon who one day will destroy Jerusalem and burn the temple. Is that who got, you would have picked to be the first to see the vision? The one who will destroy the great temple of Solomon? He didn't give the vision to Jeremiah. Jeremiah right now is living in Jerusalem, in the Jerusalem that is to be destroyed. He's prophesying faithfully for God in Jerusalem, but the vision doesn't come to him. He doesn't give the vision to Ezekiel. Ezekiel's living with the exiles right now, and he's seeing visions, but nothing like this. And God doesn't even give it to Daniel first. He gives it to Daniel second, and that's the reason we know it. But God chooses a pagan king to be the first to see. So here's a question. Is God able to move and act according to his own wisdom and purpose even without our permission? I think we know the answer is yes. I don't think we often behave as though the answer is yes. Because haven't we often said, God, how could you? I believe that we as Seventh-day Adventists are a blessed people called forth by God to know and teach and do many things in these last days, not the least of which is some of the things we're covering in this series. But let us be certain we are under no illusions here. We have not caged God 
within our church systems or our theologies or our structures as though it is only through us and with our permission that God is allowed to act in the world. Therefore, beware of anyone who would tell you there is no need to look for the hand of the Lord outside of our own circle. Anyone who would do that, it seems to me, has not fairly considered the implications of the prophecy in Daniel 2 because the Lord will work where he chooses. God used four pagan kingdoms in a row in order to cleanse, restore his people, and then clear the way for his greatest purpose on the earth. I will tell you about that at the end, but I'm getting ahead of myself now. Back to the vision, Daniel 2, verse 28. This is Daniel talking to King Nebuchadnezzar. He says, Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in your bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. So, so let me just say this. If you were to ask me, I'd have to tell you, I have no idea why God seems to be so fond of Nebuchadnezzar. Do you think Nebuchadnezzar is the first king to ever lay on his bed and wonder what's going to happen in the future? I kind of think they all did that. But for some reason, God chooses him to tell him what's coming. We'll have more to say about this and God's relationship with Nebuchadnezzar as we go on. But for now, let's continue verse 31. Daniel says, Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. If you need a visual here, you can look over here onto the banner. It was that kind of thing. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Okay, you got the pieces of this vision in your mind? An image with four different parts and then a mix at the bottom. Then a rock cut without hands smashes the whole thing. The wind blows it away so that there's not even a memory of it remaining. But the rock itself grows and fills the earth. So what does it mean? Verse 36. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. 
In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. So now I suppose it might be appropriate for us to expect a certain degree of obsequiousness out of Daniel talking to the great king. Yet even with that expectation, don't these words seem over the top? King of kings? Isn't that a phrase we use for Jesus? God has placed everything in your hands. This is actually a fascinating foreshadowing of what we're going to talk about in chapter 4. You are the head of gold. Again, I'm not sure what it was that God saw in Nebuchadnezzar. But man, there's something different here. We go on, verse 39. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. All right, so here's what he tells him. You see these four different metals. They each represent a different kingdom. And then after that comes a period where there is no clear dominance, but instead an unmixable mixture of weakness and strengths and peoples. So we'll have four kingdoms of clarity and then a period without that. But that's not the end. Verse 44, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Now, in a moment, I'm going to show you how this dream was perfectly fulfilled. Or at least, I'm going to show you how all the parts of this dream that have been fulfilled were perfectly fulfilled. But before we do that, we need to tie up the story from last week. Recall, the king had seen a dream. He asked someone to tell him the dream so he knew they could interpret it. The wise men said, it's not possible. The king said, okay, then you're all gonna die. But you remember what Daniel did in this moment? He didn't panic, he prayed. Remember that, right? Don't panic, 
pray. He went in and asked for time. They went and prayed, and God gave Daniel the dream. Now, here's the ending of the story, verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. So here's my question. Is God faithful to those he has called? You remember the story of Daniel. It was this young man growing up in Judea hoping for a good life, but, but then the Babylonians come and take him away and he's off to exile and everything seems terrible but oh wow look it's turning around he's invited to come in and and learn to be a wise man but oh no now that's taken a terrible turn because he's going to have to defile himself with these foods but he makes his stand and God honors him and all is well and he becomes appointed a wise man and then oh no like one year after he becomes a wise man all the wise men are going to have to die because they can't do this But in all of it, Daniel doesn't panic. He prays. He trusts God. And every time God delivers, Daniel brings the praise. Don't panic, pray. Does your life ever go like this? You're just like Daniel. Don't panic, pray. And when God delivers, bring the praise. That's how you do it. You will never be denied any place or position where God has truly called you to serve. Because you could not have imagined Daniel, a young man in Jerusalem, would become the top wise man of Babylon within a couple short years of arrival. You can't plan that. So don't panic. Pray. And when God delivers you, Bring the praise. But now we turn ourselves to the vision and what time has revealed. There's a couple points we need to consider. First of all, there are multiple visions in the book of Daniel. Therefore, any clues as to where to look for meaning are critical to notice. I mentioned something last week, and I'll bring it up again. Chapter 2 is interesting because the first three verses of chapter 2 are written in Hebrew. But then, shortly after verse 4 starts, the text changes from Hebrew to Aramaic and remains in Aramaic through the end of chapter 7. Aramaic was a language spoken in these pagan nations. And I suggested to you last week that the fact that the language shifts should be a clue to us when we're attempting to interpret these prophecies that we need to look beyond the Hebrew nation to the pagan nations for our interpretation. And I think there's another clue that tells us to look there as well. And that is the fact that God chose to reveal this vision in the form of an idol, essentially, which should tell us, don't look narrowly within Israel. Look at the big picture. So where do we start? 
Well, for this particular vision, it's actually easy. For some of the later visions, where to start gets a little trickier. But for this one, it's actually easy, for we are told in the text what the starting point is. Daniel 2, verse 36. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them. You are that head of gold. So if this dream is a true vision of the future, we should expect to find in history four dominant kingdoms in this region, starting with Babylon. Now, the question naturally arises, well, there were lots of kingdoms around the world. Why are we focused here? Well, we'll take this up a little more when we consider chapter seven, but let me give you a short answer here. The kingdoms in this vision are the pagan kingdoms of significance that directly impact the purpose of God, which is to bring Jesus Christ to live and die for our sins and initiate the Christian church. Each of these kingdoms will play a role in that coming to take place, but we'll say more about that later. So here's the question. If we look at history, do we find the four kingdoms that this vision predicts? Well, you are the head of gold, the kingdom of Babylon. The kingdom of Babylon really got going around the year 626 with Nebuchadnezzar's father. His father would get it going. Nebuchadnezzar himself would come to the throne in 605 and would rule until 562. This is all BC. So he had a a 43-year, pretty lengthy reign. And the kingdom of Babylon would dominate this particular region of the world. You see the dark brown there. It's, it's what would modern day Iraq and Kuwait and, and some of Syria, modern day and Lebanon and Israel. You see where it stretches all across that region. This was the kingdom of Babylon. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign in the year 587, Jerusalem would be destroyed. King Zedekiah would be killed. Jeremiah would ultimately end up being hauled off to Egypt uh, with some of the folks from the land. They take him there. Ezekiel describes this whole scene during these days. But Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom will not last much beyond him. In fact, the kingdom of Babylon only lasts 23 years after the death of Nebuchadnezzar. And it actually gets into a strange time where there's actually two kings, a Nabonidus and another one named Belshazzar. And the kingdom will fall 23 years after Nebuchadnezzar dies, which which makes it believable, just like the text tells us, that Daniel was still alive when the Medes and the Persians came. Babylon would rise to power originally, if you remember from the first Sabbath we talked about this, from a coalition with the Medes. The Babylonians and the Medes would defeat the Assyrians. It's interesting that it would be their old partners, the Medes, only now in coalition with the Persians that would bring down the Babylonians. And the next kingdom that would arise would be the empire of the Medes and the Persians. 
The vision said that the chest and arms would be of silver. The empire of the Medes and the Persians would arise. And this really was a remarkable kingdom, originally dominated more by the Medes, but eventually more by the Persians. We'll, we'll deal with more of those details when we get to chapter 7 and 8. It was a huge empire. It stretched all the way over into India today, all the way down into Egypt and even across into Greece in the area over there. By the year 480 BC, there would be over 50 million people who were a part of this empire, which is estimated to be 44% of the earth's population at that time. No other empire in history has ever had sway over a larger percentage of the earth's population. Now, because it was huge, there was no way to, to rule it like we would expect today. So there were all these different satraps and governors and all of these different officials throughout the empire. You can remember the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be broken and all those things. There's a lot about this empire that comes out in the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther because those books are written in the context of this empire. And just to give you a taste of what this empire was like, Esther chapter one, verse one. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet, banquet, for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were all present. I have no idea how many people this was, but it was huge. Now look how long it lasted. For a full 180 days, a half year long banquet. He displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Can you imagine? During the time of the Medo-Persian Empire, the Jews would return from their exile back to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild the city. And this event would be a key moment to the prophecies of Daniel 9 and Daniel 8, and in fact would come, according to the prophecy of Jeremiah, that the exile would last 70 years. Yet after two centuries, the Persians would be swept away. A new power would come on the scene, and it was astonishing how fast this new power came. The belly and thighs of bronze, the empire of Greece. It was astonishing in that it happened so fast, and then also astonishing in how fast this new empire itself would fall apart. Now, calling this the empire of Greece, I think in a sense, is sort of a misnomer because actually Alexander the Great, the one who achieves this, is actually a Macedonian. He was not a classic Dorian or Ionian Greek, and it would not be until his father, Philip of Macedonia, had managed to subjugate Athens and Sparta that Alexander could then launch a, a conquest against the Medes and the Persians. But it's amazing what he accomplishes. You see this map. He starts all the way over there in Greece on the left and he just keeps going. He just keeps going. With shockingly rapid victories, Alexander gains the throne at age 20. And he drives his army all the way across, down into Egypt, all the way across into India. 
and he never loses. The only reason they stopped was because his soldiers said, okay, enough already. They never lost. His soldiers just finally said, no, this is too far. And they turned around and went the other way. And Alexander's like, but, but. He would die in the city of Babylon in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar at age 32 because there was no point left in life. He'd beaten everything there was to beat. He conquered that whole region in the 12 years of his reign. But he dies. He leaves no heir. And instantly his kingdom splits into four parts. That will be significant when we get to chapter 7. Alexander would dot the world with towns named after himself. Alexandria, Virginia. I did that at first, too. Not Alexandria, Virginia. That came later. Alexandria, Egypt was named after Alexander. And there's one you might have heard of in the news. You heard of Kandahar, Afghanistan? That's named after Alexander. It was Alexander Har being a name for city. Became Kandahar. All these places named after him. He would spread Greek culture and Greek language over that whole region and the other direction. This was a remarkable thing. But the Greek empire wouldn't so much be overthrown as eventually absorbed by a new power that would arise, Rome. The legs of iron, the Roman empire, Originally, it was just a city-state on what we would call the Italian peninsula, but it was one whose military power just kept growing and growing, and eventually Rome would come to dominate the entire Mediterranean world. The Mediterranean Sea was their private lake to play in because they dominated every part of it. And in fact, reached far enough that they built Hadrian's Wall in the northern part of Great Britain to keep those crazy northerners out of the civilized world. They brought the Pax Romana. Have you ever heard that term? The peace of Rome. This entire region under the rule of Rome no longer went to war with each other. Occasionally they had trouble with Rome, but basically this whole region was at peace. And in order to keep it in order, they built roads throughout this whole area. I'm telling you these things, not because they're random facts, but because they were for God's purpose. Jesus would live and die during the days of Rome, and in fact would be killed by Roman soldiers, and the church would be born under this empire. It's hard to put an end date on the Roman Empire because Rome was not so much overthrown by another power, but instead disintegrated at the hands of multiple barbarian tribes, the ancestors of the modern Europeans, as well as the ancestors of most of the Caucasian members of this church. You knew that, right? Our people are pagan barbarians who invaded and destroyed Rome. Yay! Think about that next time you feel so civilized and are so angry with those other people that are coming and invading your land. How do you think you got where you are? But here's the thing about barbarians. You just can't ever unite them. You ever tried to do that? 
And thus, we have the feet of iron and clay, the ununitable nations of the world from roughly 476 until today. You see, the Roman Empire would break down into all of these pieces and throughout the generations, different leaders would come along and try to get it all back together, but nobody ever got it back together. So what do you think? Has this dream of Nebuchadnezzar come true so far? Did we see four kingdoms and then a disintegration after that? Indeed, this vision has come to pass except for one part, and that is God's ultimate purpose of total victory in Jesus. Verse 44, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. So far, all the parts of the image from Nebuchadnezzar's dream have come true. And we find ourselves continuing to live in the days of the feet of iron and clay. We are, by the way, blessed to live in a portion of iron within those feet because we live in a strong place. But one part to this vision remains, and that is the stone. It's the last, the last kingdom described. It's a kingdom not like the others, for it isn't a kingdom that rises up and passes away, but instead it's one that is established by God and lasts forever. You see, all the kingdoms of man were established by armies and power, but this kingdom is established by the hand of God. And it is a kingdom that crushes all history before it, growing itself to alone fill not just the region of the Mediterranean, but to fill the entire earth. It is the kingdom of Jesus. The kingdom that he said is not of this world, for it was cut from the mountain without human hands. We can enter this kingdom now. Did you know that? Even though it has not yet come in power, we can enter this kingdom now. And we are given the opportunity to bid others to join us in the kingdom. Now here's the thing, Pastor Barb demonstrated this so well with the water. Some have lost hope waiting for the stone kingdom because it's taken so long. Others have never believed there could be a kingdom not of this world, but God told Nebuchadnezzar that this kingdom would come. And it is the only part of this vision that hasn't come true. So do you believe? In the dream of Daniel 2, God has revealed to us the frame for all biblical time prophecies. This vision gives us the big picture sketch and reveals to us that the end is certain. In the end, God establishes the kingdom of Jesus forever. 
You must know and you must understand Daniel 2 if you ever dream of understanding the rest of the book of Daniel or any part of Revelation. For all other prophecies must fit this frame. A series of kingdoms, a time of division, the coming of the great kingdom of God, and the destruction of everything that came before. That's the frame. The other prophecies will give us details, but no prophecy after this will change this basic frame or alter its certain end. In Daniel 2, we see that God isn't just sovereign over a small handful of so-called chosen people, but is in fact sovereign over the affairs of humans even when they don't know it. I told you there's four ways God used the pagan kingdoms to accomplish his purpose. Babylon. God used Babylon to take the best out of the land of Judah and keep them in safe keeping while God purged Judah and Jerusalem of idolatry and unfaithfulness that had become the norm of the people. God used Babylon to save his purpose. Medo-Persia. God used the Medes and the Persians to then take that handful that God had protected and place them gently back in the land to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. Greece. God used Greece and the culture of the Greeks to cover this region of the world with a single language that everyone would know in addition to their regular language. Why does that matter? Because God's church was pretty soon going to be writing a book that we call the New Testament. And they were going to need a single language to write it in that could go anywhere in this region and anyone could read it. Rome, so many things. Rome sent Mary to Bethlehem from Nazareth so the Savior could be born there. Rome protected Jesus from the Jews just long enough. I mean, if Jesus had tried to emerge within a Jewish culture so set against him without Roman overlords, he'd have never made it three and a half years. Protected Jesus long enough for him to make clear his identity and mission. Rome fulfilled prophecy in the manner in which Roman soldiers killed Jesus and divided his clothes. Rome provided an era of general peace in which the gospel could easily spread over those roads that the Romans so carefully built. Rome literally saved Paul from the hands of the Jews and then locked him up so that he had time to write the New Testament. I could probably go on, but I think the point is clear, right? Our God reigns regardless of who sits on the throne. And not just that, but we also know the end is certain. We know what's coming. Daniel 2, verse 45, the great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. What's coming? Jesus is coming. 
The end is certain, and it ends with Jesus coming again and establishing the kingdom that lasts forever. The great God of heaven, the God of wisdom and power, showed this to Nebuchadnezzar. And now that same God has shown this to you. The end is certain. The kingdom of Jesus will come. God will accept nothing short of total victory in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've given us this sure word that regardless of the interpreting and the twists and turns that might take place between here and there, at least we know the end is 